Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Memory was an ocean, and I bobbed on its surface. This line from the novel Life of Pi by Jan Martel has been ringing in my ears over the last year. The young protagonist of this story, Pi, loses his family in a tragic sea accident and then experiences months of loneliness, solitude, and suffering, literally and figuratively adrift from everything he knew to be home. You would think that he would cling tightly to everything he could remember, but the elements, the demands of survival, and the gnawing pain of loss all align to estrange him from himself, to draw out a line by which forgetfulness could excise his trauma if it had to. Some things you have to forget, but then again, how can you? Memory was an ocean, and I bobbed on its surface. In a way, I feel the weight of this line. I'm sure we all have experiences that we wish had not happened, and I'm no exception to that. But also, the last year has been such a disruption for me that I have felt at a kind of arm's length from my own experience. Like there's a version of myself that is waiting to happen as soon as the landing gear drops. Like when people begin talking about COVID in the past tense, or when I pick up writing in my free time again, you know, those kinds of things, I'll finally be me. And yeah, I know that this sounds like the beginning of a Zoloff commercial, okay? But just bear with me, all right? My point is that in my own experience, I, I think I've actually built up this notion of stability and confidence as a thing that I used to have that is somehow mine to reclaim. But if I take a step back, I don't, I don't think I ever actually had that. Elizabeth knew me at the height of my career writing angsty and intellectual poetry in college, and she would be the first one to tell you that hand-wringing has always been one of my favorite pastimes. And to speak of stability, at a certain point in my life, I literally felt like I needed a tattoo of all the places that I was moving through in order to keep track. So I wouldn't like lose track of my story. I literally, I have it. It's, there it is. I've got <laughs> one for every place, okay? I'm a little short. I need, I, I've moved in a couple more places since then. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that stability and confidence have been a part of like a narrative in my head a narrative of loss that I must recover, okay? This has been, it's a track that I run in my mind. Or take another example of this. Starting back in May, debates have been volleying across the public arena about what place, if any, so-called critical race theory has in the public schools. And I, I don't mean necessarily to speak to the merits of either side of the argument, but I do want to identify 
that a, a significant aspect of the arguments that at least I have heard conservative commentators make is that white students deserve to feel proud of their heritage and that promoting a historical narrative that affirms America's greatness is good for morale and for the social and emotional well-being of those students. Now, I highly doubt that presenting a curriculum that is intentionally molded to any political agenda is good for the well-being of students, to say nothing of society. But the part I want to zero in on for today is exactly the part that says that some students deserve to feel a certain way and that a curriculum should safeguard those feelings. But this is almost exactly the kind of safe spaces argument that was characterized four years ago by conservative commentators as a sure sign of the erosion of the social fabric. Because, those commentators said at the time, above all, truth, above everything and above our feelings about it, truth is what should organize our classrooms. This is how nostalgia works as a partial gangrene on memory. It technically ignores the situation right in front of us, remembering just enough of what used to be to highlight our sense of loss, but forgetting just enough to make the past seem perfect and worthy of a full and unaltered recovery. If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Nostalgia is a powerful emotion to trade on. This if only that takes our sense of loss for granted. But lest we be tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, as Paul said in today's reading, I think we Christians need to learn to recognize when we're being handled. So much of the public debate on both sides trades on these narratives of loss and lack, that it can be easy for us to get wrapped up in those narratives and then miss the opportunity to join in what God is already doing in our time because we didn't have the ears to hear. And this is the shift that Jesus is trying to bring about in the conversation with the crowds that we read for today. He wants the the crowds, and he wants us to hear that before the conversation started, God is already bountiful. God is always at work, and God is actively bringing life to humanity. So first, God is already bountiful. The experience of the crowds over the two days that we hear about in John chapter 6 at first, at first blush, is not an experience of bounty. They arrive ready to follow Jesus, but soon there isn't enough food. They get one miraculous meal with some symbolically rich leftovers in the form of 12 baskets of fish and bread. And the meaning they see in this is clear. This new teacher who expounds on the Torah and who provides for the people with 12 baskets left over, this is Moses. This is David. 
this person will lead the 12 tribes. And Jesus intuits that they intend to crown him king, and he escapes with the disciples. So then the crowd wakes up the next day, and their king is gone. And they find him eventually on the Sea of Galilee, and perhaps when they find him, they expect to meet the caring teacher and shepherd who divided the loaves and fish the day before. But then they're met with rebuke. So there isn't enough food. There aren't enough good leaders. And when you find one, there isn't enough time with him. Their sense of lack then becomes even more clear as the conversation with Jesus ensues. Rabbi, when did you come here? You aren't here because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Work for food that doesn't perish instead. This food is the gift of God. What must we do to perform these works of God? Just receive it. Just believe in the one sent by God. Okay, but what sign are you going to give us so that we can see and believe? Our ancestors were given manna in the wilderness. And here their sense of lack is the most apparent. If only we had manna like they had in the wilderness, we would know that you were the Moses we should follow. But Jesus' response is not to trade on their nostalgia. If he were trading on their nostalgia, he would have said something like, what about yesterday did you miss? (laughs) I literally fed you in the desert, and I directed the collecting of the baskets, and there were 12 of them. What did you miss? But Jesus isn't trading on their nostalgia because the work that God is doing is much more than an emotional card trick. I've been helped most to understand this by the English preacher and theologian Sam Wells, whose mantra is that God gives God's people everything they need to be faithful. The crowd asks, well, what about what was written? He gave them bread to eat. He gave them bread from heaven. They had a Moses. They got a Moses. What about us? And Jesus responds, no, you both have God. And God abundant is who you have. You can almost hear their sense of lack. Yeah, but that, does, that makes you Moses. You're supposed to be the Moses. And he says, no, that makes me bread. Jesus is offering them a totally inverted way to understand his role in God's story. Jesus doesn't mediate God's presence to us through a commandment first or a sense of direction or belonging. He's not a symbol of some deeper truth we need to look for or some puzzle that we may or may not solve. Jesus is the bread we already have before we know that we are hungry. In this sense, God's provision is already given before we know what to ask. God is nearer to us than we are to ourselves. And God says yes. The church already has everything we need in order to be faithful because God is intimately with us in Jesus. 
and is always at work, calling and enabling people to respond in faith and action. The only question is how do we join in that work? And the answer is that we look for the ways in which God is active, giving life to dead things, and actively bringing restoration to broken relationships, which means that faithfulness may not look the same in every season. But though the faithful response to the world may change, there are, I think, some guiding lights that we should follow and that the gospel and epistle point us toward this morning. So two things I'll touch briefly on that are, I think, guiding lights to faithfulness for the church. The first is improvisation on our tradition. And that term improvisation is one that I brazenly stole from Sam Wells's book, which is called Improvisation, the Drama of Christian Ethics. And the second one I want to talk to you about, I didn't steal the word for this one, I don't think. I probably did. I don't know. Pruning to let the air in. That's the second one. So improvisation and pruning. So first, God brings life to the church by showing us where we can improvise on our tradition. The crowds were looking for a new Moses, a new Moses, but they were being offered a new manna. Of course, neither one of those options, Moses or manna, makes any sense if you're not already steeped in the story that begins in Genesis and follows God through the Exodus experience. This is the insight of the psalm that we prayed together today, Psalm 78. We need to receive the traditions of the faith, especially the story of Scripture, as converts and children, and then we need to teach them to the next generation, not because there was a time when our ancestors got it right, and we need to try to step into their shoes. Exactly the opposite is the case in this psalm. God was and is active, calling forth people to be faithful, and the ancestors did not respond appropriately to their call. But then, according to this psalm, their failure becomes not a weight for us to carry or a mark or stain on the line that follows but a kind of standing invitation in God's family. They didn't get it right, but maybe we will. God calls a people from across time, not one generation only, who set the model for the rest. And then there will be things that we don't get right. And maybe our children and grandchildren will. The key is not that one generation looks exactly like some other generation, but that they should set their trust in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. There's an old-fashioned Protestant term for this kind of active, ongoing memory that is a tradition in the best sense. The term is semper reformanda, always reforming. The church is always reforming. This doesn't mean that we are always only looking to return to some perfect interpretation of scripture, although the spirit may call us to to that at times. 
And especially it doesn't mean returning to some golden era when the church got it right. But again, the spirit may call for a surprising reversal. As one example of this, and this is a little bit of a heady example, so I'm sorry, um, but it's been a long time since wealthy Christians thought very much about ethics as related to economics. Sometime in the 18th or 19th century, morality became attached to the word personal. And it was divorced from the word social, as social structures were increasingly regulated by experts working in bureaus and economists and executives who argued that economies operated by fundamentally amoral forces of demand and supply. But a few centuries on, when we look at the environmental havoc and rank labor practices that have been the result of demand and supply economics, I think that a return to the idea that our wallets are not divorced from our desires is crucial at this time. The ancient preachers of the church took for granted that what you did with your money both reflected and affected your soul. Instead of demand and supply, I wonder if better terms would be desire and satisfaction. I think that would put us closer in the territory to be able to see that our economics should look like love. Here is how a friend of ours decided to live out her faith in her economy. She decided that any money that she will earn from investing will be earned through companies who are actively making the planet a better place. Her most recent, and I think at the moment only, okay, but her most recent investment was in a company that buys sustainably grown kelp and manufactures dietary supplements for livestock, which drastically reduce the amount of methane in their flatulence. It's like 80% methane, and that's one of the largest sources of methane on the planet. So to be clear, I have no idea if that's a smart investment in the economic sense. I don't know enough about it to be able to speak to that. But environmentally, it looks like love. There's no reason for us to be embarrassed to talk about money in the church. I don't know for sure, but I would guess, just this is just a guess, that our congregation has some significant investment portfolios in our midst. Money does work in the world. And as followers of Jesus, we should take care whenever possible that the money being earned in our name is doing work that looks like love. I think this probably applies in how we spend our money too, but I'm increasingly convinced that the call of the Spirit is to creatively improvise on our tradition's wealth of insight on how our economies are an expression of our desires. The desire the Spirit gives us is love, and so our economies should talk about love. So if you invest money, you ought to look into activist investing or mutual funds that pressure corporations to pursue ethical labor practices and environmental practices you will probably earn less money if you do this. I'm just going to say that at the outset. Then again, you're also going to die. 
And more important than both of these things, you are God's ambassador in a fallen world, sent to show what the kingdom of God can look like. So we should reconsider this question, not because we need to adopt all of the traditions of our ancestors, but because just as the crowds needed to experience Jesus, not as Moses, but as manna, this is one way for us to meaningfully set our hope on Abraham's God in this place and this time in a way that requires creativity, curiosity, and faith. So that's one thing to do. But escaping the mindset of nostalgia may also require us to refrain from doing. If God is intimately with us every step of the way, this should open up for us the freedom to make mistakes and to change course, perhaps even in some radical ways. God is nearer to us than we are to ourselves, and God says yes. If I'm always pursuing what I thought God wanted for my life when I was 15, or always and only pursuing who I thought God was or what I thought Christianity was when I didn't even know what life was, at a certain point, as Paul says in what we read from Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. A mature person with a mature faith can make some pretty surprising changes without it meaning the end of the world. One of the insidious ways in which nostalgia nestles into our view of things is that it wraps up one kind of ideal in a silver bow, and it casts our present reality as heavy and fraught and irreversibly broken. If only I had done this. If only things had gone that way. Or it may masquerade as integrity, but it's really only the kind of integrity that a straitjacket has. But as all things grow, they need occasionally to be pruned to let in more light and to allow air to flow through them. The crowd thought that faithfulness required a king and a sword, but Jesus reminds them that God is already with them, and they need only accept the gift. So I would encourage you as a second thing to do some pruning in your life. Choose one thing that you used to think you had to do in order to be an acceptable person, and let it go for six months. Maybe that's using every bit of your free time to be productive. Maybe it's some kind of preening regimen or a workout schedule, or maybe even what used to be a healthy spiritual practice for you or for your family has become oppressive. Follow the lightness of spirit and accept the fact that for a Christian, life is supposed to be experimental because God is with us and has already said yes. Follow the lightness of spirit. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Finally, a word of caution about this. You should do it in full communion with the church. 
As Paul says, there is a full body of diverse gifts here. So find someone who seems mature and pastoral and discuss with them the ideals or whatever it is that has become oppressive and look for the lightness of spirit in that conversation. Look for it so you'll know how to follow it. Or if your introversion is oppressive, intentionally partner with someone who is evangelistic or prophetic. If it seems, whatever it is, like something needs more light or more air, it's because it does. This is the only way that we discover how we as a body are knit together. And this is also a way in which, as Paul says, we are being built up in love by the Holy Spirit. This is what salvation looks like. It looks like more light, more air, more freedom. It used to taste like honey, but now it looks like flesh. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.